Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and I know we normally start exactly on time. I was told one of our witnesses was stuck in security and not to show up until now, so I apologize to any of you who got here exactly on time. Which one of you was stuck, by the way? I have to own up. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it through, and I'm glad we're glad. What was that? Yeah, very good. Um, so the committee will come to order. Thank all of you for being here. I want to thank our witnesses for testifying today. We appreciate your willingness to come before this committee. I spent part of last week in Iraq, and I think it's quite clear that ISIS will soon lose all of its territory in, in Iraq. I, I think we're well on the way to make that happen. As we sit here, Iraqis are returning to their recently liberated homes in eastern Mosul and security forces are fighting through Western Mosul. I think it's uh, pretty incredible to understand what ISIS is doing to booby trap these homes as they go back with bombs under their mattresses, um, in, behind the refrigerator door. It's a pretty, uh, pretty unbelievable situation. It's worth commending the work the Iraqi security forces and the Kurdish Peshmerga have done in Iraq. American support has been crucial, but the Iraqis are liberating their own country. Their success is what brings us to the topic of today's hearing, uh, what happens after ISIS. There's reason for a degree of optimism in Iraq. In many ways, the unthinkable horrors of ISIS have unified Iraq against a common enemy. I uh, spent time in an IDP camp, and I know many of you have done the same thing, and met with Iraqis and many different, with many different ethnicities, uh, supporting and relying upon each other, which was uh, great to see. Uh, but the same underlying problems that contributed to success of ISIS still remain, and they will remain after um, the kinetic activity is underway and the, de and the restabilizing completes. Prime Minister Abadi recognizes the need for decentralization, political reform, and control of the, um, of the militias, but he's had trouble implementing solutions, and I think that trouble is going to continue. I know there's an election coming up in 2018, and uh, my sense is many of the same issues that created this will continue. The Shia militias are an enduring and existential problem for Iraq as they attempt to turn battlefield success into political success. Uh, candidly, we're setting the, uh, setting the precursor for in some ways a Hezbollah-like uh, entity in Iraq, just like uh, we have in, in, in Lebanon right now. Uh, in many ways, Iran appears to be supportive of U.S. efforts to de defeat ISIS, but I think we're all waiting for the day when our interests in Iraq no longer align with theirs, and Iranian-supported militias attack American forces. I traveled to Lebanon after Iraq, and the parallels between Hezbollah and the Shia militias in Iraq are hard to miss. Um, with Iraqi elections coming in 2018, I think the big question is whether Iraq can unify behind their effort to rid the country of ISIS and finally move forward politically, or on, in a different scenario, could the underlying and unaddressed sectarian tensions in Iraq provide the background for an Iranian-backed militia leader to become prime minister? I think that's not out of the question. For us, I think the questions focus on what steps we can do we can take to ensure Iraq is the, has the best possible chance of success. Part of that is a longer-term security commitment to Iraq. Another part is the longer-term political commitment. I hope both of you can help us remember the lessons from the past and recommend what steps we should take going forward. And with that, I'd like to thank you again for appearing before the committee and turn to my, my, my good friend and ranking member, Ben Cardin.
Well, Mr. Chairman, first, thank you for making the effort to visit the region. Uh, particularly the countries that you visited are, are very important to our campaign against ISIS. And uh, we look forward to you sharing that information uh, with the members of this committee. During the recess, I had a chance to visit Mexico with Senator Merkley and Markley. Mar Markey. I get Merkley, Mark. They, they, they're, they're two. We've got to put you in different seats. It's a bit, but with Senator Markey and Merkley. Uh, and we had a chance to see firsthand some of the issues uh, concerning that relationship. So it was a. I think a, a worthwhile period for us to get some on-the-ground uh, information. And I thank you for conducting this hearing. Uh, we have invested a great deal uh, in Iraq. And as we are sitting here, Iraqi forces and police, Kurdish Persmerka and Sunni tri tribal fighters and an assortment of other fighters have entered the next phase of the Mosul campaign. Having secured the, the part of the city east of the Tigris, these forces enabling, enabled by U.S. training, weapons, intelligence, combat support, and coalition air campaign have entered western Mosul, a critical stage in the month-long campaign to push ISIS out of, the, of its capital in Iraq. Uh, Secretary Mattis has delivered to the President uh, the uh, plan to defeat ISIS, and I know we're all looking forward to that information being shared with us. Uh, so that we're all on the same page as to how we can defeat ISIS. Uh, I must tell you, the, um, the Obama administration's strategy of working by, with, and through Iraqi and Kurdish partners on the ground in Iraq to defeat ISIS is working. And we all hope that the uh, Trump administration will be able to declare a victory uh, in our campaign to defeat uh, ISIS. Uh, we know that, in part, that will be thanks to the work of the previous administration's sound strategy of assembling an international coalition to carry out an air war, standing up significant programs to train and equip local forces, and assisting on accountability inclusive local leadership. No military campaign against ISIS will be successful in the long term if U.S. forces do the fighting. Iraqis need to own this fight, and the United States needs to support Iraqis in reclaiming their country and then rebuilding it. This is the only way to prevent the next ISIS. Moreover, a stable, self-reliant Iraq is the only way to push back on the Iranian interference in Iraq. Iraq cannot become another fertile territory for expansion of Iran's nefarious activities or a land corridor linking Tehran to Damascus to Lebanese Hezbollah. However, ISIS pending defeat in Iraq does not mean that the Iraqis or we are prepared for the next phase of the fight. I have spoke of my concern at last year when we had a hearing and reiterated again the risk of a catastrophic success if we declare victory when ISIS is defeated on the battlefield. The war in Iraq will not be over because the underlying causes of instability in Iraq remain. Communities are shattered. People are traumatized. Displaced people cannot return to cities riddled with ISIS mines and no job prospects. And Iran-backed militias operate with impunity. There is no social contract in Iraq between the government and the people, no trust and no confidence. The government in Baghdad must demonstrate that it can be a government for all Iraqis, regardless of ethnicity, sect, or geography. This means real power-sharing agreements with the Kurdistan regional government, decentralized governance that empowered Iraqi Sunni communities, and a national program of reconciliation and reform of Iraqi security forces. If the Iraqi leaders are willing to move in a responsible direction, the United States should be ready to support them. 
A real plan to defeat ISIS in Iraq requires the Trump administration to devise, resource, and implement a reasonable long-term policy for U.S.-Iraq partnership. But here's the challenge. We heard just yesterday, we got a glimpse of what the Trump budget will look like. And I was extremely disappointed, at least by the reports, that the national security budget part in the Secretary of State under the, uh, is being cut. How, do we, or how are we able to be a partner if we're reducing our capacity to help in regards to development assistance and diplomacy? Also, we hear from the Trump administration inflammatory statements uh, like take Iraq oil or dangerous statements like Muslim bans, which include Iraq, and targeted that very Iraqis that have partnered with us to defeat ISIS. We're telling them they're not welcome in our country. So the, the president's executive order to the Pentagon asked for recommended changes in the rules of engagement. That also could concern the Iraqis, because that's, to me, meaning are we going to make more civilian casualties a price for getting ISIS? So on one side, we're saying we want to partner with the Iraqis. On the other side, we, we talk about taking their oil. They're not welcome in our country. And there may be more civilian casualties in the way that we conduct our campaign. That's not a way that I think is conducive to setting up a partnership of trust that becomes critically important for defeating ISIS. So I look forward to our discussion today with our witnesses as we try to come together in, I hope, the last phase, defeating ISIS in Iraq, and then looking from what we've learned in that campaign to go after ISIS wherever we find them anywhere in the world. Thank you, sir. We'll turn to our outstanding witnesses. Um, our first witness is Dr. Michael Knights from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Thank you so much for being here. Our second witness is Mr. Harding Lang from the Center for American Progress. Uh, I think you both know that you can, we would ask you to summarize your comments without uh, objection. We'll enter your written testimony into the record. If you could take about five minutes to summarize, we'd look forward to questions. Again, thanks for coming through our security apparatus and taking time to be here today. And if you'd start, uh, Dr. Knights, we'd appreciate it. Thanks very much, and uh, apologies for near lateness. The security was doing a great job today, uh, especially uh, with uh, suspicious sounding, uh, foreign sounding. The characters. accent, I realize what yeah. happened. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. Yes, um, so, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, and the distinguished committee members, uh, thank you for inviting me to testify at today's hearing on Mosul and the campaign against ISIS. I'm particularly proud to be appearing before you for the first time as a new American citizen, an immigrant, and an adopted son of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, at heart, we're here today because we know Iraq is important. ISIS knows Iraq is important. It has from the very beginning. ISIS, uh, Iraq is the center of ISIS's world and will continue to be so. Iran also knows that uh, Iraq is important. The regime in Tehran, uh, the world's largest uh, state sponsor of terrorism, has an ambitious agenda inside Iraq. Uh, seeking to establish Iranian-backed Shia militias as the protectors of the Shia community in Iraq. And we in this room know that Iraq is important as well and that America's role in Iraq is equally important. Uh, just two and a half years after we withdrew from Iraq, uh, Mosul fell and ISIS took a third of Iraq. And uh, ISIS took a third of Iraq and that's no coincidence. Now the US is back and we're some months away from the full clearance of Mosul, but given the dramatic comeback staged by ISIS and its predecessors in Mosul in 2004, in 2007, and in 2014, one can justifiably ask what will stop ISIS or a similar movement uh, from laying low 
regenerating and wiping out the costly gains of the current war? What can we learn from history? Now, the written testimony provides a detailed summary of the findings uh, from my late 2016 report called How to Secure Mosul Lessons from 2008 to 2014, which drew on some of my own research in Mosul back then and uh, work in uh, Nineveh province uh, since then. But suffice to say, we know in great detail what went wrong in Mosul uh, and how to rebuild Iraqi security forces and community relations to lessen the risk of ISIS's resurgence. The trick is coaxing and supporting the Iraqi government to take these right steps under their difficult, under their difficult political circumstances right now and going into the 2018 elections. Uh, I really want to uh, focus on the key takeaway, uh, which is that the mission to destroy ISIS's military and terrorist capabilities in Iraq must continue under a strong US lead and under a multinational framework similar to today's combined joint task force operation inherent resolve. Could be a NATO-led mission, but it's CJTFOIR is bigger than NATO right now and involves a lot of non-NATO contributions. Uh, the US lead is an important part. So I want to focus on a couple of things. Back in the old days, um, when you would be in Iraq, you know, you had Americans and you had some Brits. Now when you go to the coalition command centres, uh, you have the Australians, New Zealanders, Italians, French, British, Germans, Spanish, Canadians, all making a very significant contribution. And bringing these, uh, the world's largest economies and largest security assistance partners together uh, strengthens our hand as we try to get the Iraqi government to undertake political reconciliation and consensus approaches to security in the liberated areas. It also ensures a good degree of burden sharing uh, with our international partners. Some of them can do things we can't, like the Italians uh, providing their specialist training to the uh, Iraqi federal police, something that we would find difficult to, uh, to do. And also, many of these coalition partners are the very states that Iran is depending upon to be its major foreign investors. And to some extent, this makes it more difficult for Tehran and its militia proxies in Iraq uh, to disrupt the involvement of the US-led coalition or to threaten US trainers. We have all the mechanisms in place uh, to, uh, to continue security cooperation in Iraq right now, the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force, enhanced intelligence coordination, uh, US presence in the major Iraqi headquarters and a sturdy train and equip effort. Um, but we're about to shift now the mission into what is really the difficult part. Uh, fighting them as an army was the easy part. Now we're going to pursue the small ISIS cells into the ungoverned spaces of Iraq, mountains, deserts, river deltas, even the refugee camps, prisons, juvenile detention centres and broken homes. Uh, these are the next places where we will be pursuing ISIS. And we need to do that through a rejig program of intelligence support to the Iraqi state, in particular focusing on the organised crime uh, background, fundraising background of ISIS, because that tends to be how ISIS comes back in places like Mosul, and preventing mass casualty attacks that stokes uh, sectarian tensions in Baghdad. Likewise, we need to bulk out the security forces, because they're just too small right now to cover all the missions, all the borders, all the areas, like the oil-rich hub of Basra. Uh, which is currently being uh, slowly taken over by militia control. And we also need to advise them on counterinsurgency, policing and criminal justice reforms. So closing with an analogy, the United States in Iraq is like an exhausted man who's pushed a large boulder up a hill and he's nearing the crest. It would be tempting to stop pushing and hope that the boulder's momentum might carry it over the top. But the lesson of 2011 to 2014 is that if we stop pushing, the boulder will grind to a halt and it will roll right back over us. We have a chance, a very rare opportunity, a second chance, a do-over. 
We have the right formula, I think, for thrifty uh, US involvement in Iraq. We have a very uh, experienced national security team with masses of hard-won uh, Iraq experience. We have a strong international coalition to share the load with us. Now what we need to do is what Americans do best, stick at it and make it work. Mm. As Churchill noted, uh, you know, this is not the end or the beginning of the end, but it might be the end of the beginning. Uh, I've personally never had more confidence that the US-led multinational coalition can work with Iraq's moderate leaders and security forces. And I think that our mission to defeat ISIS's military power and prevent its regrowth in Iraq is achievable. So thank you very much for the opportunity to share some ideas with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much for that testimony, Mr. Lang. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, members of the committee, uh, thank you for the honor and the opportunity to discuss the situation in Iraq today. Um, indeed, we stand at an inflection point on our policy in that country. While much of the military task will soon be accomplished, what comes next will be more complex to help the Iraqis recover and reconcile. As we enter this phase, there are four urgent priorities and two enduring challenges that the U.S. will face. And you, sirs, have both touched on many of those in your opening statements. For me, the first urgent priority is the humanitarian situation. The number of those displaced by the Mosul operation stands roughly at 160,000. Uh, far less than many had feared. But over 700,000 civilians remain trapped in areas controlled by ISIS, and the UN estimates that a quarter million could flee. The ISF needs to secure aid distribution and evacuation routes from Western Mosul, and donors will need to come up with more assistance. The UN is likely to need another uh, 570 million to cover the next phase of the operation. The second priority is governance in a liberated Mosul. This was a top concern when I was in northern Iraq with everyone that I spoke to last year. Given the large number of Iraqi players involved in Mosul's liberation, some of the clashes along ethno-sectarian lines are probable when the threat of ISIS recedes and various groups begin to vie for control. An arrangement is needed to deconflict between these groups and reassure the Mosul's population. One option would be to declare a transitional period and appoint a high-level committee to oversee the administration of Mosul and the surrounding areas. The committee could include representatives from Baghdad and Erbil and a senior US or coalition diplomat to help broker. The third priority is stabilization. Coalition diplomats point to the return of displaced persons as a key indicator that a liberated area uh, or community has stabilized. But only one third of those who have fled uh, have returned at home, have fled the fighting have returned home. So we're still looking at over three million who remain displaced. In short, stabilization lags dangerously behind the military campaign. To date, the UN has led on stabilization. And while its efforts have been commendable, the counter-ISIS coalition should bolster its role, uh, and the US could deploy additional civilian contingency assets to support the UN effort. The fourth priority is to reach an agreement with Iraqis about a residual US or coalition military mission. The US has more than 5,000 troops in Iraq. With their support, Iraqi and Kurdish forces have made impressive gains against ISIS. But these forces will need help to protect these gains for some time to come. A follow-on mission should continue to train and equip our partners and should maintain a presence in both Anbar and Nineveh to reassure the Sunni Arab communities that they will not be abandoned. Unfortunately, Iraqi leaders are already under pressure to reduce the US presence. At the moment, we still retain a tremendous amount of leverage inside of Iraq because of our military contribution. And we need to start talking to the Iraqis now about what comes next while we retain that leverage. Looking beyond the immediate, a central challenge, uh, enduring challenge, will remain national reconciliation. 
Sunni Arab community is supposed to be offered a tangible stake in the future of Iraq. To date, the US strategy has been to nurture reconciliation through support for devolution of authority, recruitment of Sunni Arabs into the security forces, and legislation like the amnesty law that passed last August. The US should also encourage local attempts at reconciliation. Only 3% of donor money for stabilization has actually been spent on reconciliation initiatives. So there is clearly room to grow. For their part, the Kurds have been amongst the most steadfast and effective partners against ISIS. And they will want to be compensated for their sacrifice at a time that aspirations for independence are running high. A second enduring challenge is something that everyone has touched on so far. And that will be the Shia militia. Estimates of total Shia militia in Iraq vary from 100 to 120,000 uh, forces at this stage. Most are organized under the banner of the Popular Mobilization Front, and many are backed by Iran. The Iraqi government has passed legislation making the PMF an official component of the Iraq security forces, but the implementation process remains unclear. One option includes turning the PMF into a reservist force. Another is to fully integrate them into the ISF. Now, the US could support either of these options uh, for units that are not directly backed by Iran, but those that are backed by Iran will continue to pose a significant challenge, and we must be able to balance against them. In conclusion, I believe that the United States maintains a significant interest in the future of Iraq. The US has spent over 10 billion to fight ISIS in Iraq and Syria, and our goal should be to protect that investment and prevent the reemergence of a similar terrorist threat. We should also seek to balance Iran's influence inside Iraq by bolstering Iraqi sovereignty. None of this requires the US to nation build, but we need to maintain a pathway for sustainable engagement. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. I look forward to your questions. Thank you both. Uh, just based on the people you talk with, you, you get no sense that there's not a longer-term commitment, do you? I, every U.S. official I'm talking to understands what you just said about the fact that we've got to be there for some time. You get no sense of that from anyone you talk with, do you? To the contrary. Uh, no, sir. I, I guess the question is the need to actually sequence and start the negotiations as soon as possible while we're still at this moment of high level of leverage. I think, I think they understand what needs to be left behind. I think those conversations are underway and I, I, get, uh, I get no sense just for what it's worth that there's anyone that wishes to have another 2011 type activity. I, I just would like to ask, are y'all getting any different signals from anyone? So it's true that uh, there is a a new understanding and willingness to continue the mission, including with the coalition partners as well as U.S. Yeah, no question. So let me ask you this. The Kurds are obviously moving towards independence. Uh, we spent a great deal of time with them. I know they're not quite as strident with their conversations with a body, but they're very strident when they come see us here and certainly very strident in Kurdistan. Give us a sense of the impact of that should they move um, to uh, uh, to further cause themselves to be independent from, from Baghdad? So at the moment, uh, the discussion in Kurdistan around independence, I think, has a very economic flavor. There's an understanding that if relations with Baghdad break down, the Kurds would lose access to a number of uh, uh, economic aid supports. They would also potentially uh, have more complicated access to international security assistance. And, uh, and that they might well face greater legal challenges at exporting their oil. I don't detect inside the Kurdish leadership a near-term 
ambition to push quickly for independence, more to negotiate a, um, a kind of amicable divorce over a period of five to ten years with the Baghdad government. You want to say anything to that? No, I would only add that I mean, it, it, at the moment, when one spends time in Kurdistan, you get the feeling that there's a tremendous amount of internal house cleaning that needs to be done. There's a lot of political friction and difficulties between the different Kurdish parties. Uh, and much of sort of the economic state building program in Kurdistan is sort of on hold. Mm -hmm. So uh, in terms of Kurdistan becoming a viable state anytime in the immediate future, uh, again, there seems to be a separation between the rhetoric that we hear from the Kurds and then the closed door conversations about what they really think is in the realm of the possible. I think the fact that they'd have to ship their oil through Turkey and could very well become a sub-state of Turkey if they're not careful, um, obviously, um, causes concern, and so to have a non-amicable relationship with Iraq would be very much in their, not in their interest. Let me ask you, the, the PMF, one of you mentioned uh, uh, those that are aligned with Iran certainly should not be a part. Look, most of them are aligned with Iran, so, I mean, there's a law that's been passed relative to the popular mobilization forces. It looks like they're going to be a part of the security infrastructure there. They are very much aligned with Iran. Most of them, there are a few that aren't, as you alluded to, Mr. Lang, but I mean, this is a, a fact of life there. I'm just wondering, um, uh, I don't see this not being a fact of life, and are, are you guys sensing there's some, some different outcome that may occur with the PMF other than them being part of the security infrastructure there? I think the real danger at this stage would be if you see the PMF or elements of the PMF, particularly the three or four large ones that are backed directly by Iran, if they, to the extent to which they remain outside of the ISF, and I think that there probably is a degree of intention inside of them to do so, that becomes a danger point. And then for us, it's the danger of the investment that we make in the Iraqi security forces going forward to serve as a balance against that that becomes crucial. And I would add that uh the, I, the PMF are very splintered. Uh, they're very difficult to consolidate under one electoral banner or under one command and control arrangement. So splintering them down into their irreconcilable elements like Kataibas Bullah, Asaibullah Haq versus other elements related to the uh, shrine militias and even Badr, you know, there's, there's always the potential that someone like, a group like Badr, which is the largest PMF, uh, entity could be mainstreamed over time and could be broken down into subcomponents with a clever policy. Uh, also, anywhere where the Iraqi security forces is present, they're able to effectively counterbalance the PMF presence. In a place like Basra, for instance, where there have been no major Iraqi army units since 2013, we see true breakdown and true militia control. Senator Cardin. I want to thank both of our witnesses. Um, there's no question we've made a great investment in Iraq, and it's in our national security interest to make sure that Iraq becomes a, a stable country. Uh, it does not become uh, an Iranian client state, uh, which is one of the fears I think many of us have. We don't want to see the type of collapse we saw in the Iraqi security forces that we saw in 2014. So it does require uh, the attention of the United States and our coalition partners in order to give Iraq a chance for a, a national government to represent all of its people and a security force that can maintain the security in the region. So I, I want to point out a couple challenges we have and then see whether you think what we should be doing. 
One challenge is whether we will get the Iraqi cooperation on the maintaining of our troops or our military presence in their country. Uh, there is political considerations here. When the president's executive order named Iraq as one of the countries who would not accept refugees, uh, that makes it difficult for the Iraqi government to work with the United States on the continued military presence. Or when statements are made about taking the Iraqi oil, that certainly is not conducive to the type of political support that we need from the Iraqi government. Or I might also add the January 28th executive order that is reviewing the rules of engagement uh, because it's clear that as you change the rules of engagement, the chances of more civilian casualties become greater, which again raises the risk factors of the ability of the Iraqi government to cooperate with their coalition partners. So I put that out there as, as, I guess, challenge one, and whether we're moving in a direction that's going to make it impossible or difficult for us to get the type of, of cooperation from the Iraqis for a continued presence. And secondly, the trust factor, whether we spend a lot of money on military. That seems safe under the, uh, under the uh, Trump proposed budget that we will see soon. But the other side of that coin is how do we help them re rebuild their nation? How do we help them get an economy that's moving for all of its people? How do we deal with governance support from the point of view of our development assistance, whereas we now see budgets that are being suggested by this administration that could have deep cuts in that aspect of uh, our uh, national security? So with those two challenges, how do you see us more, uh, how dealing with this uh, challenge uh, so that we can, in fact, be a partner to Iraq? Mr. Lang, you can start. Dr. Knight, whoever wants to start. You know, on the question of Iraq cooperation, I mean, this really is the fundamental issue in terms of maintaining a residual force or a follow-on mission. Um, and you raise the issue of the executive order uh, and its, you know, the ban on the seven countries. You know, the Iraqi parliament responded to that uh, and pushed quite hard for a similar ban inside of Iraq on Americans. And it put Prime Minister Abadi in a very difficult position where he was forced to sort of override the parliament and to not action that piece of legislation. And that kind of pressure, uh, Prime Minister Abadi is already in a reasonably weak position. And the last thing that we need to do are to sort of fan the flames of anti-American sentiment inside of Iraq, um, particularly for those political forces that are backed by Iran and they would like to see us leave. So uh, I couldn't agree more that those kind of statements have been deeply unhelpful not just from a political stent, but also a morale point. I mean, there was one point where the um, sort of commander of the counterterrorism service, which is one of our most valuable partners inside of Iraq, his family is living in the United States. And when the order came down, it was unclear to him whether he would even be able to come back to visit. So these sort of things um, uh, probably, uh, they do more harm than good in terms of our negotiations going forward. Um, on the trust factor for rebuilding, uh, Yes, I mean, the, at this stage, we really, I mean, we are at an inflection point, and the, um, there are gonna be some critical issues, particularly short-term stabilization, um, that are going to need work to follow on and lock in some of the military gains, and those are uh, activities that should fall to civilians. Um, there are key offices, like the Office of uh, Transition Initiatives and USAID, or CSO, or the State Department, that do this kind of stuff. Um, there are about $2 billion that have been pledged to do some of this work over last summer, but it is, has yet to make its way into a pipeline to actually impact on the ground. Um, and it's hard to see that if we're not there to lead with economic assistance going forward, how we're going to be able to rally the rest of the coalition to do the same. Dr. Knight. 
So very quickly, um, it's clear that we must have no more self-inflicted wounds when it comes to our acts and our deeds. We need to leave no opening for uh, the Iranian-backed movements to cut us out. But it's also clear the fact that we survived this uh, January problem uh, shows our value to the Iraqis. Um, we need, if we're going to continue our presence and our mission there in Iraq, we, ne we need to stress the continuity of the mission. Not a new mission, not a new mandate, not a new agreement, the same one that we're operating on right now. If we create even an inch of daylight between us and the Iraqis, we will get thrown out again. We need to maintain and stress the continuity of uh, the mission. And one of the things that Prime Minister Abadi's learned, I think, over the last couple of years is it's much easier to do things informally than formally in Iraq. So anything we can do you know, to keep it quiet is, is good. Um, in terms of rules of engagement, I maybe would push back a little bit. There are, there's a difference between prompt civilian casualties that happen because you drop a bomb on them by accident and the very large number of civilian casualties that often happen if you let a battle drag on for months rather than weeks. A place like Ramadi is a great example of that. I think in many ways, by loosening the rules of engagement slightly, you might well save more lives in the long term. And I think we've definitely seen that since 2014. Thank you. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I just want to do some rough numbers. I don't need anything specific, but uh, talked about in your testimony, uh, Mr. Lang, the PMF force is somewhere between 100 and 120,000. What, what is the size of the Iraqi security force? Similar? Again, just rough numbers. No, the Iraqi security forces will be uh, far larger than that when you add them all together, maybe around 530,000. 530,000. How many are engaged in the Battle of Mosul right now? So the Battle of Mosul uh, should be around 70,000. Okay. Uh, we have about 5,000 U.S. troops. Uh, Dr. Knights, you were talking about what a, you know, really an expanded uh, committed coalition we have. How many troops do we have of our committed coalition partners? Don't have an exact figure on that. A couple thousand? Yeah, it would be a couple of thousand. It would probably be slightly smaller than the uh, U.S. when you added everything together. The so total coalition is probably under 10,000. Yes, absolutely. What do we have in terms of number of Peshmerga involved or available? Involved is a different, difficult concept because they're running the entire front line between the Syrian border and the Iranian border. Uh, but in terms of being involved in active combat operations, it's almost zero right now. Okay, so then how, how many are available? How many are involved right now in terms of holding the line then? Uh, there's probably about, uh, you say about 200,000 Peshmerga on the front line. Okay. And ISIS, what are we current uh, estimates of their fighting force now? It's only ever a guess, but, uh, you know, maybe uh, under 8,000 in, uh, up in the Mosul area. Okay, so we literally have hundreds of thousands massed against about 8,000, so we, we should be able to win that battle. Uh, so then we do, do talk about the residual force. Uh, going back to 2011, which I think is still just a historic, a blunder of historic proportions, bugging out of there, uh, the talk was leaving somewhere around 20,000 troops. Uh, in hindsight, would have that stabilized the situation? Would, would that been enough U.S. troops to help stabilize that? Again, what you both are testifying is Iraq is incredibly important for the region. It's surrounded by all these countries. St stabilizing Iraq, leaving a stabilizing force, I don't think things would have spun out of control. So would have that been enough to stabilize that situation? I think uh, it would have done because... Ultimately, when you look at the kind of impact that our small numbers of advisors are having right now in a number of key headquarters, uh, we can have a pretty transformative effect with a fairly small number of people put in the right place. And if you 
basically ISIS taking Mosul was a fluke. ISIS taking a third of Iraq was a fluke. They thought they were just going to do a prison breakout. They ended up accidentally taking over a third of Iraq. You know, that rottenness might not have been as extreme within the Iraqi security forces if we'd had a residual mission. So our, is our residual mission more of a challenge today than it would have been in 2011? Or, or because we have these more, we have the committed coalition, we have the Peshmerga, we have, you know, in, in many respects, we have a common enemy in ISIS right now. Uh, is it going to be easier to, to have a residual force? I think we have some factors playing to our advantage. Uh, the Sunni community in Iraq, I think, has seen exactly how bad ISIS is, and there's not a lot of sympathy uh, left for them. Uh, I think, likewise, uh, you, people have seen... We've created a breakpoint between the 2003 to 2011 experience, invasion, occupation, etc., and this new mission of helping the Iraqi security forces against the common enemy of pretty much all Iraqis. So I think we're in a slightly better position now, and particularly having the international coalition there, all those nations, whereas before we basically it was just the US, UK, and a couple of small countries. Have Iraqis understood, also learned the lesson as well, that if they... You know, don't come up with an agreement. If we don't have a stabilizing force from committed coalition, things are going to just fall apart again? Or, or, do, or do they think they've built up their Iraqi security forces, they're going to be able to take care of this without a, a committed coalition of the, of the West? Um, so just to break down a, a couple of points here, uh, my sense of this would be that sort of within the Iraqi security forces and in certain members of the national security establishment inside of Iraq and also the Peshmerga, uh, clearly there is an understanding and an appetite for the U.S. to remain. The question is, as that conversation moves into the political realm uh, and into the, like the political crisis in Baghdad, where Prime Minister Abadi is sort of straddling these okay, two. Okay, I have limited time. What do you think estimated size of residual force of U.S. troops to stabilize that situation? Do you think 5,000 is going to do it? 10,000 total coalition partners? I would say around 5,000 with an equal number of coalition partners could have a very significant effect and could be sustainable. And then finally, when we talk about development and, and you know, potentially U.S. foreign aid, the oil is flowing in Iraq now, correct? What, what percentage of the oil fields are open and producing revenue that ought to pay for that redevelopment itself? Well, pretty much all of them. Uh, you know, there's a few very small ones that were under ISIS that are still damaged, but pretty much everything else is operating. And the Iraqis are now bringing in about $5 billion a month, which allows them to meet their operating budget and their payroll. So, so maybe they could even fund the stabilizing force as well. They, they have revenue coming in. This isn't a failed economy anymore. They've stabilized what is their primary economic resource, oil. And that's probably the first goal of stabilization, make sure that oil stays flowing. And that's why we have to build up the security forces again so that they can protect things like Basra, the one and only main oil exporting hub for federal Iraq. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and I appreciate uh, our witnesses. Let me just uh, make a prefatory remark that uh, while these hearings of private citizens who come from uh, very distinguished backgrounds and think tanks are important and illuminating, I hope at some time soon the administration will nominate individuals that the committee can consider so we can actually get people from the State Department to speak to what some of our strategy and plans moving forward on, because in the absence of that, uh, it is very difficult uh, to think about how one formulates policy here. So um, I, I hope that uh, that will happen soon. Um, 
Moving back to Iraq, let me just say that uh, President Trump inherited a campaign that has made some significant gains to oust ISIS from its strongholds. And while we may indeed be on the verge of some major military successes to liberate cities and people from ISIS's brutal stranglehold, lasting peace and stability uh, can be far more elusive. And while the President has previously claimed to know more about ISIS than the generals, the Pentagon's uh, view uh, and its new plan requested by the President indicate there's a lot of work to be done. Now, both of you have indicated that this work requires significant attention, resources, and commitment uh, from Iraqis, the United States government, and coalition partners. Uh, I think everyone on this committee, and I think you would recognize the importance of leadership and critical decision-making. Uh, we have yet to see anyone nominated for critical positions at the State Department, including a Deputy Secretary. The Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs currently has an Acting Assistant Secretary and no Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary. With these critical positions vacant, there has been no policy guidance for dedicated nonpartisan civil servants and foreign service officers to execute. Equally, if not more troubling, the administration is reportedly weighing devastating cuts to the foreign assistance budget, which would include cuts to Iraqi programs, including police training, judicial reform, education, economic development programs that make the Iraqi population more stable and resilient to ISIS's warped ideology. With the recent announcement of the Principals Committee reviewing the Defense Department's revised ISIS strategy, it looks alarmingly like the State Department, our agency tasked with leading diplomacy and policymaking, is being undermined and sidelined. So my question is, what impact does that have on our ability to execute plans successfully in Iraq? Will significant cuts to the State Department and USAID undermine efforts to promote long-term stability in Iraq? And I invite either one of you to speak to that. Um, last year, when I, last, in my last trip to Iraq, and then also again going down to CENTCOM, speaking to folks, one of the things that was quite notable was the uh, extent to which the campaign, the military campaign, um, sort of st the way in which it was being conceived, it stopped at the kinetics. So the rest of it, like the stabilization, the development, the key pieces that need to come next to sort of lock in what the military is doing, it's just not a set of issues that the military um, was prepared to deal with or function on. Uh, and there was very little sort of connectivity back through the State Department. It had to go all the way up the chain of command and down to start having that conversation. Um, much of my testimony, one of the things we're talking about recommending was in essence a little bit of a diplomatic surge into Iraq. We're probably going to need some additional people of ambassadorial rank sort of serve in key positions to help manage some of these problems going forward. Um, and that the idea that the State Department doesn't have the kind of budget that's required um, uh, to do this, we're looking at budget cuts or may not have the staff to help execute this, may explain why some of these elements of engagement uh, along civilian lines of effort uh, have taken some time to kick in, probably too long at this stage. Dr. Knight, are you uh, interested in Well, I'm not the expert on this, uh, but we should only focus on these State Department civilian lines of effort if we're going to be able to do them right. And, you know, from having been in Iraq a long time, uh, if you can't get out of the embassy, if you can't move, if you can't meet people, it's a waste of time anyway. So, you know, in some ways, if we're going to do the diplomatic surge, it's got to include accepting risk. Uh, it's got to include perhaps re-establishing outstations in places like Hilla, where we, you know, 
killed off our, our little sort of consulate there back in uh, during the withdrawal days, and it left us with gaps all over the country by pulling these things in Kirkuk and Hiller and other places back. So if we're going to do a civilian surge, we need to really do it seriously because there's no in-between. It's either an ineffective mission that costs a lot of money or it's an effective mission uh, that's going to cost a lot of money and require risk. Um, try and do the in-between and you get nothing. You know, I, I cannot imagine at the end of the day doing all of the military elements necessary and then uh, what you need to do to hold ground, to continue to authorize, to create uh, the authority over those jurisdictions that you have reacquired and uh, not to have the civilian entity uh, that is necessary for the follow-on of governance in those areas that can hopefully lead to a better day. In the absence of that, we are just talking about a perpetual engagement uh, in Iraq that uh, uh, seems to me does has no follow-on. Uh, so I understand what you're saying about safety and security in, or, in order to be able to do it. Uh, but at the end of the day, if we don't provide the wherewithal for that to happen, I cannot imagine us doing anything but having troops on the ground for a very long period of time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman, uh, and thank you for your testimony, gentlemen. Uh, the title of today's hearing, Iraq after Mosul. Uh, we need to develop a strong plan. We've got to properly resource that plan. Mr. Lang, you, you hit on two prongs, uh, the two most obvious prongs of, of proper resourcing. We need money. Uh, sufficient uh, financial resources. We also need personnel, so we need to nominate appropriate personnel, and then we need to expeditiously consider those nominations and move them through the hearing. Uh, I find it ironic that anyone uh, would uh, criticize this administration for not putting forward people to properly staff up the State Department, yet we continuously delay consideration of some of these nominees. To his credit, President Trump signed a presidential memorandum on January 28th directing the development of a comprehensive plan to defeat ISIS. Defense Secretary Mattis re reportedly briefed top Trump administration officials yesterday on that plan. And, you know, I, I trust Secretary Mattis and, and his military counsel However, we know that a sound military plan is not enough. Uh, just yesterday, uh, the leaders in the House and the Senate received a letter you no doubt are familiar with from over 120 general and flag officers indicating that uh, we have to elevate and strengthen our diplomacy and development efforts if, in fact, we're going to keep America safe and secure. I'll quote from that letter, the military will lead the fight against terrorism in the battlefield, but it needs to strong civilian partners in the battle against the drivers of extremism, lack of opportunity, insecurity, injustice, and hopelessness. So in short, you know, a strategy that fails to address the political, economic, and ideological conditions that are really sort of root causes of so much of this conflict is, is a short-sighted uh, strategy. It's one that uh, won't be successful in the long term. Do you both agree with that assessment? Yes or no, and you can elaborate very briefly if you like. Yes, I would agree. Okay. I think you've got to have uh, security first, and then you do the rest. Without security, you have nothing. You have no base to work off of. I think the, the best that the U.S., the thing we're best at is security cooperation. That's what the Iraqis value the most. That's what gives us the most punch and value uh, there. So e even though I believe we do need to put non-military aid into Iraq, I don't think we're good at it. And unless we get good at it, yes. that shouldn't be our main focus. Which is a fantastic point. All the more reason that this committee needs to continue to work on uh, reforming 
uh, our efforts uh, in a bipartisan way over at the State Department. I know we've dealt with human trafficking, rights of women and girls, trade and energy in Africa. Uh, made numerous strides, but there is much more to be done. I think everyone recognizes that on this uh, committee. Would you both agree that uh, promoting effective and representative governance in Iraq is, is an essential element of a strategy for the sustainable defeat of ISIS? Yes or no is fine. Of course. Yes, but it's more important to have representative local security forces uh, than to have some kind of uh, perfect uh, local, system or local or national system of government there. Iraqis want security above anything else. We can handle other stuff down the line. You acknowledge we're not seeking perfection. We're seeking to manage a very difficult situation, right? Yeah. Um, and would you both agree that disrupting the flow of foreign fighters outside of Iraq and Syria, providing humanitarian relief, working with regional partners to disrupt ISIS's finances, and exposing ISIS's true nature are all important elements of a successful strategy with the due, uh, due understanding that there could well be other important components as well? Yes. Okay. And, and these are elements that will take on increased uh, importance as the sort of major military aspects of the campaign in Iraq and then hopefully in Syria begin to wind down. And you no, no doubt agree that the plan should address public diplomacy, information ops, cyber strategies to isolate and delegitimize ISIS in its radical Islamist ideology. Yes, but defeating them on the battlefield uh, is more important. In the near term? I think in all terms, because ultimately what made them so attractive was the fact that they were seen as winners. Us defeating them on the battlefield and keeping them from, from re-emerging on the battlefield is critical. The, the theme you're getting from me is uh, it's important to attack their ideology, etc., etc. That is important. But what's more important is to show them to be losers, to beat them on the battlefield publicly, and to prevent them from re-emerging. Which re undermines their ideology. Yes, Mr. Lang. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that the military success is, is, the, is the critical piece of the puzzle. It sort of sure. robs them of the content. Um, the piece on, uh, on the, the, the cyber strategy and exposing their true nature, it's just something that we've never been particularly great at, and we need to you know, probably do a little bit more work. But also there's a real question, are we the right entity to do that in the United States? And how, many, how much more of that needs to be done by our partners in the region who may have a little bit more credibility with those audiences? So you've, you've acknowledged to varying degrees and in various ways that uh, we have to fully fund all instruments of national pow power to sustainably defeat ISIS, the scourge of this barbaric ideology. Uh, and, and presumably, uh, to close here, you would agree with uh, now Secretary Mattis' formulation when he was uh, commander of CENTCOM, that if you don't fully fund the State Department, then he's going to need to buy more ammunition. You agree? Yes. yes. All right, thank you. I yield back. Thank you very much, Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here today. Um, Mr. Lang, you alluded to the reaction to the President's travel ban in response, I think, to a question from Senator Cardin, but I, I want to just phrase it another way, because do you think that this kind of a travel ban makes it harder for Prime Minister Alibadi to resist those hardliners within Iraq um, particularly those who see closer relations to Iran as being something that they believe is preferable to the U.S.? Ma'am, I, I think it particularly undermines his ability uh, to push back politically against that very group. 
because um, in essence, what many of those political leaders are saying, or representatives of uh, the, the sort of PMF who were associated with Iran, is, you know, see, we told you so. Um, this really is where the Americans are. That, coupled with the talk of taking the oil, uh, has reverberated inside of the Iraqi body politic. Um, Secretary Mattis uh, did yeoman's work in terms of pushing back against that on his recent visit, but it would probably be a good thing if we could hear that also from the Commander-in-Chief. Um, and Dr. Knights, you're nodding. Do you agree with that? Absolutely, yep. Thank you. And again, this is territory that's also been covered, but I think it's worth repeating in terms of the proposal from the administration to increase defense spending by $54 billion and take a lot of uh, that funding out of the State Department and other non-defense agencies who are, many of whom are responsible also for security. Um, several years ago, Secretary of Defense Mattis, who at that time was serving as the commander at CENTCOM, was testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee and he said, I quote, if you don't fund the State Department fully, then I need to buy more ammunition. So in your opinion, if we're really serious about defeating ISIS, does it make sense for us to um, weaken the State Department and their ability to help um, follow up on the military campaign? Either one of you. Senator, I think it will undermine our ability to carry forward the next elements of the campaign in a significant fashion. I would sort of caveat, though, that remark in the point that Dr. Knight's made about the need to be able to move outside the wire on the part of the civilian sure. agencies. Um, and there are organizations inside the U.S. government who are pushing to do that sort of thing. Um, but I think that if you don't, what we're basically locked, if we don't do this, we're going to get locked into sort of a long-term counterterrorism mission that really doesn't have a political end to it. And just to go back to your point, um, Dr. Knights, about defeating ISIS on the battlefield, what happens to that effort, that goal, if we continue to have the conflict in Syria, the civil war there that provides an opportunity for ISIS to go back across the border? And so even though we may have pushed them out of territory, as we did earlier, um, they have the ability to come back. So how do we, how should we be thinking about that as we're thinking about um, our efforts on the battlefield? Dr. Knights? So it's clear that when we lost Mosul in, or when the Iraqis lost Mosul in the summer of 2014, that had a significant cross-border element to it. And that's gonna continue. Uh, they're gonna have a uh, safe haven over in Syria for a while longer than they have it in Iraq, which means that we need to prioritize the creation of border security forces in Iraq, again, and means that we need to be able to support them to do things like wide area surveillance and uh, quick reaction force out in the western desert of Iraq and on the um, uh, Syrian border with uh, Nineveh province where Mosul is. That's one of the ways we need to evolve the security cooperation program from where it is now, fighting conventional battles, to where it is then, being able to do these kind of long range operations in the desert and other remote areas. Um, should we take any special significance to the visit by the Saudi foreign minister to Baghdad this past weekend? So the first visit by a Saudi foreign minister in almost 27 years? 
I think the Saudis are uh, reaching out in a number of directions to try and calm down their regional environment and Iraq would be one of those areas. But I don't, I don't think anything really goes very far between Iraq and Saudi Arabia for very long. They're probably just doing the absolute minimum. Uh, Senator, the only caveat I would offer to that observation, I do think it is significant that the foreign minister made yeah. the visit, and I think it's something that we should reach out to and try to yeah. cultivate and continue. Um, one of the things that I think we would like to see going forward is that the Gulf states help to pay or play a more significant role in stabilization and other development and recovery activities inside of Iraq. Now, of course, this is going to be difficult, and they have a dim view, obviously, of the sort of association from the government in Baghdad and Iran. Uh, but the fact that the trip was made is not insignificant. Just a two-finger, you know, debt, debt forgiveness is really what the Saudis and the GCC need to do with Iraq, fully finishing off that, that old debt. Uh, where, but I think Saudi presence on the ground or involvement is kind of toxic in Iraq when you're down at local level. Thank you all. Uh, just for what it's worth, I, I think uh, people on the inside viewed it as a very significant trip. Iran has tried to execute him three times. He took his... He risked his life to be there, and I think it was viewed as far more significant than is being stated today. Secondly, just in response to the what's happening in Syria, I mean, General Townsend is conducting both operations, and I will say is most impressive. And uh, so I think the questions relative to what's happening there, I mean, it's being looked at as one. It's being conducted as one. And my sense is they understand full well the essence of Senator Shaheen's uh, question. Senator Paul. Thank you for your testimony. Um, Mr. Lang, uh, you mentioned in your testimony that there's no uh, real need for nation building, and yet you also say we need to take the lead on economic assistance. How, how does that go together? It sort of sounds like the same thing to me. Sure. I, Senator, I understand the question. Uh, the piece of this that I'm talking about uh, most deliberately and immediately is the, the line of effort on stabilization. Uh, and these are sort of uh, short-term, immediate, quick-impact projects that are designed to basically get communities to start to talk to each other uh, in the wake and provide a little bit of governance, a little bit of assistance, a little bit of employment in the immediate wake of the fighting. I mean, these are things that the military will tell you are required to sort of lock in any sort of gain that they're making on so the So you're differentiating um, short-term economic assistance from long-term and saying that nation-building is long-term assistance and short-building is not. You know, I think that could be a distinction. It might be a, a definitional thing, but we've been there 10 years, so we've given quite a bit of aid. It's hard to argue that a little bit of short-term assistance is not on top of a trillion dollars worth of nation-building, you know, both military and non-military. We've spent a lot of money over there, which goes back to a couple of points. Uh, one point, they're not a destitute country. They have oil, and by golly, they ought to rebuild their own country. We can be of some help uh, stabilizing things, but it isn't our responsibility to rebuild everybody's country. Look, we're out of money. We're $20 trillion in the hole. So everybody comes forward and says how great it would be if we rebuild every country. Look, I've got a bridge that's 50 years old in my state I'd like to replace. We've built and bombed so many bridges around the world, we don't have any money left over for ourselves. So we do have problems at home that we need to uh, think about, and we need to think about how long are we going to keep doing this, a decade, two decades, three decades, 50 years, 100 years. Um, Dr. Knights, you mentioned that we, there was a lot less attacks during 2007 to 2011. I'm guessing we were probably averaging, what, 50,000 troops or more? We had a bunch of people there during that period of time. The surge was basically 2000, uh, going on 2007 still. 
And then when we had less people there in 2011 to 2014, the sectarian differences came forward. You know, Sunnis were pushed out of the army and out of positions, government, et cetera. I think all that's true, um, which gets back to my question again. The sectarian differences have been there for a thousand years. And we, we can paper over them maybe when we're there. Maybe we are of assistance in that. But you think at some point their own self-interest in saying that, um, you know, one of the points you made about regionalizing um, police and or military makes perfect sense. In the Sunni region, you ought to have a Sunni colonel overseeing a Sunni region. In the Kurdish region, the Kurds should oversee it. In the mixed regions, maybe a more mixed force. But you'd think they would know that. And they had the disaster. I guess it just is, how long are we going to do it, and can we, can we do it? You know, can we paper over the differences of a thousand years, or maybe it's going to take uh, them kind of sorting out their differences that, uh, you know, the longer we stay, the more Americans are, are seen with disregard, you know. We say we don't want too many because they, they won't like us interfering in their stuff. Well, uh, maybe we need to have a lot of diplomats, be of assistance, but maybe, you know, we don't need to have large troop forces in the country. I mean, look, I, I don't understand. There's 8,000 ISIS left. You got 500,000 in the Iraqi army, and they can't take care of 8,000 soldiers. You got 200,000 Peshmerga. You know, you got another 600,000 Turks. You know, you got armies everywhere, and you got 8,000 people, and somehow Americans have to be in the middle of it. We become a target, and we end up engendering sometimes more than we accomplish. So I would just say we ought to think through how long this is going to be. And I guess to Dr. Knight's, how long do you think we have to, to stay? And are they not going to learn lessons about the sectarian strife that ends up bringing them down? I think on both, on both economic assistance and on security assistance, we've reached a place where maybe we are doing things the right way right now. So on economic assistance, we're not in there rebuilding all the bridges and building the whole power sector. We're helping them to get an IMF economic reform program. We're helping them to get bonds from the international community so they can borrow at decent rates with our bond guarantees. These things don't cost the sorts of amounts they used to when we were trying to rebuild the actual infrastructure of the country, but they help Iraq a lot. So it's a lot of bang for uh, for the buck. And no, because of the major political risk associated with being in the midst of a huge war. <laughs> but um, but also when it comes to the security uh, cooperation, you know, Iraqis down at local level do understand that you have to have mixed security forces that reflect the local population. But when you're interacting with federal uh, agencies at the centre of the country and you get down into the nitty-gritty of who ends up being the police chief in that place, that's where sometimes a little bit of US involvement uh, can have a, make a lot of difference in the picking of the right people to run the right places. And this only requires a couple of score people based out of this headquarters, a couple of a hundred people based out of that headquarters. We're not talking about the huge numbers of people or the huge amounts of money there used to be. We've learned a new way to operate and it's been very effective since 2015. Senator Murphy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me just quickly maybe try to put a finer point on the concern that continues to be raised about President Trump's budget blueprint that proposes cutting the State Department and USAID by 
somewhere in the neighborhood of one quarter to one third of its present funding. Um, two things are happening this week. One, this budget blueprint is being released, and second, General uh, Mattis's recommendation on a new counter ISIS strategy is being delivered to the president. Yesterday. Yesterday, right? And so, the, and so, there's really only two options here. Uh, either Secretary Mattis recommended a massive cut in State Department and USAID funding, and it is being implemented by the president in this budget recommendation, or he did not recommend a massive cut to USAID and State Department funding that will have an effect on Iraq, and the president is ignoring those recommendations. So those are effectively your two alternatives, and both of them are deeply disturbing. Both of them run contrary to almost every piece of advice this committee has gotten from people that understand what's going on on the ground. And so I, I just want to put this in, in context, and I, I assume we will figure out the answer to that question as the president reviews the plan and uh, makes it known. Um, but neither option looks terribly palatable. Um, to both of you, um, on this question of the importance of military activity versus political reconciliation, um, you, you, you both said things uh, in your testimony that interest me, and I'll put them both to you and let you respond. Um, Dr. Knights, you have repeatedly emphasized the priority on uh, military success um, as a key to destroying ISIS's narrative and to getting to all of the other things we want to do. Um, but we've had two big military successes in Iraq since 2003. We defeated Saddam Hussein, and then through the military surge in 2007, we effectively rendered al-Qaeda in Iraq um, sort of temporarily impotent. But because there was no political reconciliation, um, those forces sprang back to life. And so doesn't that speak to the fact that, in fact, the most important thing is being able to achieve some long-term political reconciliation? And to Mr. Lang's point, you made an interesting comment about the fact that the United States might not be um, the appropriate interlocutor to try to bring the two sides together. But if not the United States, who is? Because all of the other players in the region have a dog in the fight between Shia and Sunni, right? They, they have a favored player in that contest. And so I love the idea of outsourcing political reconciliation to someone else, um, but I'm not sure who that is. Um, and to me, that argues for a much bigger presence and a prioritization on uh, political reconciliation, contrary to what Dr. Knights is suggesting, which kind of seems, his recommendations seem to end effectively with uh, achieving military success. So I'll, I'll frame it this way. Uh, so, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Iraq. I've seen what effect politics have on local, local and national uh, security. Um, it's all about sequencing. My point is that we can do security cooperation right now. We're quite good at it, and we can deliver it right now, and it's needed right now, and it's what gives us leverage right now, and it's what probably allows us to maintain a residual presence in the country and to span over perhaps into the next prime minister's term in Iraq from 2018 onwards. So that's why we've got to get that bit right right now. Building the Iraqi security forces is about more than winning battles, winning, defeating this ISIS now. It's about... Preventing them from coming back, it's about preventing the Shia militias from taking over. 
it's a little bit controversial to say this, but I think the reason why ISIS took over a third of Iraq, took over Mosul, is not because of Sunni disenfranchisement. It's not because of alienation at local level. It's because the Iraqi security forces were not good enough. That's the reality. That's what happened. I watched it day after day after day, and we lost control of local security in Iraq between 2009 and 2014. That's the problem. Local people looked at ISIS and they said they're strong. The security forces are weak. They didn't say, I wish the constitution could be amended so the Ba'ath Party wasn't illegal anymore. You know, they were focused on nuts and bolts local issues. We need to develop security forces first that can control the place, stop ISIS from coming back, stop the Shia militias from taking over, stop people being afraid. Then move to the next stage of getting some of the more finer points of the, secure, of the politics and the uh, building of the nation. Mr. Lang, just quickly on that second point. Uh, Senator, let me clarify. What I meant is that we need to be humble in terms of the role that we can play as an external actor on facilitating reconciliation. Um, I clearly think the U.S. is going to have a, a key role in this going forward. Uh, and it's one that we are already playing through various civilian assistance programs on decentralization, et cetera. Um, the only issue is we can probably be doing more of it if we had a bigger diplomatic presence, uh, and we can do it in a way uh, that may bring in other actors and quietly behind the scenes as opposed to sort of taking responsibility for it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and to uh, Dr. Knights. I thought that was a very well-stated uh, answer when he talked about what happened in 2009 through 2014, so thank you for sharing with us uh, your thoughts. Uh, to both of you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for holding this hearing. I wanted to talk a little bit about, a, and I apologize if this has been discussed already, about a report that Rand Corporation released uh, earlier this year, 2007, in January uh, 2017. They said uh, this in the report. In 2016, violent Sunni extremists have more groups, members, and safe havens than at any other point in history. Uh, to date, U.S. efforts have not reduced the Islamic State's terrorism capability and global reach. Do you agree with that statement? Um, and if so, could you provide some additional detail? I think it's hard to argue that the ability of the Islamic State uh, to both to mount attacks outside of its area of operation uh, and to influence others to undertake those kind of operations uh, does not decrease as they lose the territory that they control in Iraq and Syria. So my sense of it is that uh, at least that part of the report, that, that particular section, it may sort of overstate uh, the case in terms of the significance of the kind of military defeats that they are suffering inside of Iraq. Uh, that said, obviously a tremendous amount of attention needs to be paid to uh, other theaters in which ISIS is operating. I mean, we've seen sort of engagement on what's happening in Libya. Um, there are issues in Egypt and elsewhere. Uh, we have to be tremendously concerned about foreign fighters heading back to Tunisia. So there is a lot of work to be done um, but I think it would be a mistake to underestimate the impact that robbing them of a capital of a caliphate in Iraq uh, has had. Dr. Knights. So the war in Iraq and Syria has sucked in a number of combatants that might have otherwise been used on other theatres, uh, but at the same time it's also boosted global recruitment for the movement. So it's offset each other in a way. Now if we have Iraq shutting down perhaps as a very active theatre for them, uh, and something happening in Syria. You know, people say when ISIS implodes in Iraq and Syria, it will explode internationally. Where will those people go? They'll stay in their host nations and they'll activate there instead, uh, maybe using less sophisticated means, whatever they have available. 
And so, I mean, the report, I mean, it talks, it's pretty clear in their thinking that efforts have not reduced the Islamic State's terrorism capability and global reach. I mean, why would Rand develop that if, uh, I mean, what, 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 why, what, how did you reach a different conclusion uh, than they have? Uh, I guess the only point that I would have, Senator, that I would emphasize here uh, is, again, I think that their ability to recruit uh, internationally and to inspire internationally um, is closely linked uh, to their ability to control large swaths of territory and to project themselves as the caliphate uh, inside of uh, Iraq and Syria. Uh, of course, we should never let down our guard about their ability to inspire and to conduct these kind of operations out of theater, um, and clearly they have shown a capacity to do that. I guess I would just wonder, over the long term, whether or not they're going to be able to maintain that capability if really we've sort of given the lie uh, to the promise of the caliphate. Mm -hmm. Dr. Knights, in your testimony you stated, uh, we wake up to the nature of an urgent threat that has been allowed to grow unchecked. We make mistakes, then we do the right thing, but then we lost interest, the cycle starts again. You talk about that in your, in your statement. Uh, in your opinion, how can this administration avoid that same dangerous cycle that you described? So uh, the first thing that you need to do is uh, don't declare victory ever under any circumstances in any conflict, uh, and especially true here. As I said, we don't want to create any kind of gap, any daylight at all between the mission we're currently undertaking and the next phase of the mission where we need to help Iraq stabilise the liberated areas, build the security forces against both the ISIS threat and the uh, Iranian-backed militia threat. If we create a sense that there is a gap between the two, that we're ending one thing and starting another, it makes it very difficult for the Iraqi Prime Minister to keep this relationship going. So I, that's why I recommend the continuation of Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve the way it currently is, to create no gap whatsoever. We don't want to create a gap like in 2008, 2009, where we said to the Iraqis, take it to your parliament and get us a ironclad written if we try and do that again, it's all over. So that's one of the things we need to avoid. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and I'm gonna continue in a, a similar line. I'm interested in the political circumstance in Iraq, assuming success in Mosul, that would allow the United States to play the kind of role that you're suggesting. So Senator Johnson was asking some questions along this line too. And we've had a lot of debates in this committee and in the Armed Services Committee about at the end of 2011, did, did the U.S. bug out of Iraq or were we thrown out of Iraq? And there's a lot of you know, back and forth about that. We don't really need to go into it. But the, but the circumstance that we have to ask ourselves is, um, I don't think there's an appetite of anybody on this committee that we get to a point where the battle on the battlefield is going pretty well and then we stay as occupiers, or we stay against the will of the Iraqi government. If we, if we stay, and we would define how we stay, I think we, it's only tenable that we stay with the Iraqi government's support rather than against their wishes. And so right at the end of Senator Johnson's questions, as he was running out of time, you started to talk about politically what is necessary for a prime minister, a body, or future prime minister, or a parliament to, to accept a role of the U.S. because we, we've been hearing, you know, kind of rumors from inside Iraq that say after a big success in Mosul, then Iran will start really pushing Iraq. Okay, you don't need the United States around anymore. You know, they, they were useful to have here to beat ISIL back, but now that ISIL's on the run, you can throw the U.S. out again and, and let us, your next door neighbor, be a friend. What politically needs to happen 
to provide space for the U.S. to have a post-Mosul role that is the right role for us to play. So it would be impossible for us to stay without the full support of the Iraqi government, and we would never try to do that. Uh, I keep talking about this. Um, I believe security cooperation is the key to us staying. In other words, demonstrating outstanding, unique value as an ally and a partner. And that's what we do through our intelligence cooperation, through things like our embedded cell with the Baghdad Operations Command, helping Baghdad to get uh, aerostats with uh, balloons, with the sensors up over the city again, helping them to get their vehicle scanning technology back up and running, helping them to develop a Baghdad security plan so that Baghdad is not being hit with a major mass casualty attack every two weeks or one week eventually. Mm -hmm. This is of ex extraordinary value to the Iraqi government and they see the direct impact of our involvement. That's the kind of thing we need to do. And this only takes 20, 30, 40 Americans uh, you know, to have this kind of impact. So that's what we need to do, I think, to help him keep us uh, in the loop, in the, uh, in the operation. Also, the economic reform support. You know, he, is a, uh, he was on the finance committee of the Iraqi parliament, the economic committee, for many years. The economy is his thing. Anything we can do to help the Iraqi prime minister turn the economy around, uh, and the electricity sector as well, which we are, is very valuable to him and to the country. Great. Mr. Lang. Senator, I mean, I think the first thing that we can do is, is stop rhetoric like talking about taking the oil uh, and, and executive orders that sort of pick out the Iraqis uh, in a way that would suggest that we don't value their contribution to the fight. Um, second, uh, Prime Minister Abadi, again, he's in a very difficult, difficult position. I mean, he is straddling a... Uh, Shia, intra-Shia political crisis inside of Baghdad. Um, and to the extent to which we can provide him with some deliverables uh, and some quiet support, uh, we do him favors and we extend the ability for us to have a negotiating partner. And again, I think uh, the, I, the extent to which we are seen and understood to be you know, by, with, and through behind the Iraqis in uh, undertaking these types of operations and not sort of adopting a wider sort of counterterrorism mandate uh, where we have our own operators doing their own thing. Uh, that's going to be quite important for Prime Minister Abadi to be able to sell this going forward. I, I kind of, in my own mind, use the phrase, you know, partner. You use partnership, partner, not protector, and trying to kind of look at it that way. Um, I know that Senator Corker asked you some questions before I came in about uh, Kurdistan. And while I agree with Senator Menendez that we do eventually need to have our State Department folks here, sometimes they're going to follow a party line. And one of the good things about the, the independent guys is they don't have to follow a party line. And sometimes there's some virtue in actually hearing from both. Down the road, Kurdish... Sometimes it's good to know what the party line is. <laughs> that, that's not... I, I completely agree. But, but down the road, as I've been in the region and been in Kurdistan, you know, that... that the, the dream or professed dream of Kurdish independence seems very strong, unlikely to die in the northern part of the country. Down the road, how does that affect the prospects for the future of Iraq, if, if whether it's in five years or 10 years or 15, the Kurds pursue a path toward independence? It's in the US's interest, I think, to back whatever the Iraqi government and the Kurds agree between themselves. We can't want a united Iraq more than Iraq wants it itself. Our role should be to help the two sides 
come to an arrangement. We are an honest broker. We are trusted uh, by both sides, or at least equally distrusted. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so we need to help them to talk to each other about the disputed areas, about the oil, about confederalism or independence or whatever model they choose. Because when it comes down to it, it's in a strong US interest to have two strong US allies next to each other who are also allied with each other. And as you can imagine, when one country becomes two, there's very strong economic synergies between the two, naturally. That's the case between Iraq and <coughs> Kurdistan, and it is happening under the surface right now. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you, sir. Senator Kennedy. I'd like to thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, for convening this hearing, and my thanks to uh, both witnesses today um, as we try to confront the path forward uh, in Iraq against ISIS. As has been mentioned uh, by several other senators, uh, President Trump has inherited uh, a successful strategy that is moving forward. We have both Americans deployed in the field and a wide range of coalition partners, and they are currently making real progress uh, in the battle to retake uh, Mosul, but we have unresolved and important issues going forward. Uh, it is in our national interest to secure a positive, productive, long-term partnership with Iraq. Uh, and a strong bilateral relationship will allow Iraq to serve as an effective counterterrorism partner and hopefully a bulwark against Iranian influence uh, in Iraq and the whole Middle East. And achieving that goal is going to require a responsive whole-of-government response. Uh, I share the concern expressed by several others here um, that the um, alleged, the suggested uh, request from President Trump to cut tens of billions of dollars uh, out of our diplomacy and development uh, budget in order to fund an expansion of defense spending uh, is unwise and ill-considered and may, in fact, lead to the, the wrong outcome. Um, so let me turn, if I could, to a few uh, questions about stabilizing uh, Mosul after uh, this military campaign, given the other questions that apparently have already been asked by members of the panel. Um, is it possible um, to stabilize uh, Mosul if Shia militia uh, are not just uh, allowed to enter Mosul, but to remain in Mosul. Um, and do we have any options, uh, Mr. Knights, first, if I might, do we have any options to prevent the Shia militia um, from entering Mosul in the first place? I think in your written testimony, you'd reference the, the very dark but real possibility that they will turn into something more akin to Hezbollah, a long-term uh, malignant presence, uh, forward-projecting Iranian um, influence uh, into Mosul and Iraq in the long term. What options do we have to prevent them from entering and then to stabilize Mosul should they do so? So our problem is not in Mosul City itself or the immediate outskirts where the all, very, very small numbers of Shia population mean that it's going to be pretty much impossible for the Shia militias to maintain any kind of presence there and they have not played a significant role so far in the urban combat operations. What they have done is to create a major expeditionary base to the west of Mosul, Tal Afa Airport, which we probably should have held on to back in 2014. Uh, and they now have an outpost right next to the Syrian border, uh, which they're probably going to try and hang on to. They're also getting their claws into all sorts of micro-minorities around the Mosul area, Shabaks and uh, Yazidis and all sorts of others. Um, really, the, the, the Shia militia PM, PMU threat is most active around Baghdad, Basra, the southern areas, the mainly uh, Shia areas, and some of the mixed Sunni Shia areas around Baghdad. The option really, I think, is to build up the Iraqi counterterrorism service and Iraqi army as a counterbalance to these militias, to help Iraq to develop a reserve system, 
which it could use to suck a lot of these uh, elements uh, into the formal security forces and then slowly pick them apart and, and actually institutionalise them. Uh, we need Prime Minister Abadi or an Abadi-like figure to continue leading Iraq, uh, bringing that kind of moderate politics at the centre. Uh, and uh, we need to build the security forces volume, I mean literal numbers of units, numbers of active brigades, because right now they don't have enough to do Baghdad, to do Mosul, to do the borders, to control Basra where all the oil is. They need to build more forces. They don't have to be remarkably capable, they just need to be uh, warm bodies in uniforms that can resist sheer militia uh, infiltration or pressure. Mr. Lang, and if you might also add, sort of how do you view the, the critical safeguards, size, training, other institutionalized safeguards that'll prevent the security forces more broadly, as well as the Shia militia, from becoming a sectarian actor? I mean, a great deal of this has to do with the political leadership at the top of these institutions, right? Um, and so we've seen Prime Minister Abadi actually manage to get some of his appointments through in January, which was a hopeful sign. Um, but one of the core sort of focus that's going to need to be going forward, uh, and in terms of the leverage that we maintain with Prime Minister Abadi and with his government, is to ensure that the leadership of these institutions um, don't revert to the kind of sectarian policies that we saw under uh, Prime Minister Maliki. Um, again, I think that a strategy in which you're trying to build the capability of the counterterrorism service and other elements of the Iraqi arm, army uh, will be critical as a counterweight. Um, the Iranians, for a series of the different um, uh, popular mobilization fronts, they're not going to stop what they're doing, but we can balance that. So it's both a political piece at the top and then balance in terms of capability inside of the formal security structures. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Senator Markey. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, last June, Brett McGurk, the Special Envoy for the Global Coalition to Counter ISIS, testified before this committee. At that time, the military operation to clear ISIS from Fallujah was coming to a close. I told him that I was concerned that tactical military successes will not bring about the strategic defeat of ISIS unless accompanied by simultaneous political initiatives to bring divergent groups together in local governments willing and able to represent and protect all of the people who live in areas cleared by ISIS. While Mr. McGurk agreed that such efforts are essential, it is not clear that they have made, then made a real priority. On February 22nd, the Washington Post reported that, quote, so far, the U.S.-backed campaign has focused on defeating ISIS militarily rather than addressing the reasons so many of Iraq's minority Sunnis initially turned to the group. Given President Trump's rhetoric and budget plans that would cut diplomacy and development assistance, I am even more concerned that political efforts will fall by the wayside. On January 31st, the AL Monitor reported that Shia-dominated popular mobilization units, quote, have established at least 10 offices in the past few months in areas that were thought to be cleared of ISIS by tactical military operations, including Fallujah and Ramadi. And the New York Times and Washington Post have reported in the past two weeks that ISIS continues to threaten people in areas uh, where uh, uh, post-clearing governance and security efforts appear insufficient, including Fallujah, Ramadi, and Tikrit. Now, in your prepared testimony, each of you called for the U.S. to take specific measures to create viable political arrangements in Mosul 
after it has been cleared. Uh, and I believe you, Mr. Lang, you believe that there should be, there would be great value in a formal transition period during which a high level governing body advised by a full-time U.S. senior diplomat empowered to broker disputes would support and oversee local administration. So could you each kind of briefly address what are the lessons from Fallujah? What are the lessons from Ramadi? What grade would you give? Um, what um, has already been taking place there in terms of ensuring that there is an inclusive, welcoming uh, political environment for the Sunnis? Otherwise, we're just going to have a repetition syndrome where we reenact the past year after year, over and over again, in a never-ending cycle uh, where there actually has never been a political solution to this problem uh, that doesn't give a breeding ground for ISIS to return and repeat history. Mr. Lang. Senator, thank you for the question. And I, there are a couple of points that are interesting here. I mean, in my prepared remarks and sort of oral testimony, uh, one of the things that I highlighted was the fact that you still have three million people displaced by the conflict. Um, many of these people, in fact, the vast majority of those who have been displaced are displaced from areas that have been quote unquote liberated quite some time ago. And this is highlighting the fact that many of the, the Sunni Arabs don't feel comfortable going back to these communities yet, whether or not able because they haven't been cleared of mines or politically they feel insecure, where's the presence of PMF. So uh, I think there's a great deal more work that needs to be done in a number of these areas. Um, in Why hasn't it been done? To a certain extent, um, it, the actors and the resources that have been mobilized against the problem are insufficient. So uh, the United Nations, again, is in charge of stabilization in the wake of uh, the military operation. Uh, and I actually worked with the UN at one point in Iraq. Uh, and so I think they've been doing great work inside of their capability, but the- uh, But not great work in general. I, I believe that Inside of their capability means that they're meeting expectations uh, for what their capability is, which is not gonna match the task. Is that correct? Senator, I think that we could probably bring more to bear on the problem. What does more know. to bear mean? What do we need to do here? Because otherwise the political instability is like a, it's just a recurring cancer that just keeps coming back because you don't have the intervention, you don't have the treatment. So what is needed here? Because it's just a preview of coming attractions otherwise in Mosul and other places in Iraq. No, I couldn't agree more. I, I would think so like some of the couple of practical steps that we could take, for example, um, you know, USAID's Office of Transition Initiatives uh, could deploy onto the ground and start undertaking stabilization programs in many of these communities. They can get outside of the wire faster than the UN can. Uh, and they, they know the country well. They were operational there behind the US military in many of these places during uh, the last decade. Um, there's a lot of money that's been raised for stabilization, about two billion uh, in a conference last summer, but that hasn't sort of trickled down into actual Why not? implementation. It's a good question. I, my sense Who do you blame? Um, my sense is that the donors, that we don't really have the mechanisms for implementation on the ground. No, but who, who do you blame for not having the donors put up the dough and who's not implementing? Who's uh, blocking the implementation? I, I'm not sure if it's a question of blocking the implementation, but my sense is that we don't have the capacity yet. I'm not sure the UN has the capacity to distribute all of that assistance. Uh, and I think some of the donors haven't made that money available. So I think it's a twin problem. Okay, well, um, again, you know, desperate people do desperate things. If you have the aid there and you're helping them, then they're more likely to move in our direction. And if it's not there, then it just creates an environment where ISIS can return. Just say, see, we told you. 
you know, trusting the Shia, trusting this government is just not a good idea. So, um, so I just think that's a good lesson for us, okay? And I know my time is up, Mr. Chairman, but uh, I'm taking your warnings uh, very seriously, and we have to find a way in ensuring that the donor's money is collected and then it's distributed in a way that does deal with the, that underlying sense of isolation and fear, which they justifiably have given what has happened in that country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator Cardin. John, I just really wanted to thank our, our two witnesses. I, I find that there is more unity in their comments than division, and it really points out the so many threads have to come together for Iraq to be a successful state uh, in being able to maintain stability and representing all the communities. So you mentioned one of the critical points, the Kurds. We met with the Kurds. They're not going to give up their desire for independence. That is clear. They want an independent state. And Dr. Knights, I agree completely with you. That's not our decision. That's the Iraqis and the Kurds have to reach a conclusion. But then if they get some autonomy or independence, how does that deal with the security of Iraq itself? And how does the popular mobilization forces integrate to the Iraqi security forces in a way that the Sunni communities feel that they are protected and doesn't open up again the opportunities for extremist groups to see a security vacuum and therefore an ISIS or a, a, a something similar to ISIS forms again. So it's so many complications. So Mr. Chairman just points out that I, I look forward uh, to getting a briefing in regards to uh, uh, Secretary Mattis's plan, and it's gonna have to have a major role for the jurisdiction that comes under this committee, and that is how do you rebuild Iraq to a country that no, not only can provide the short-term stability to the communities, but the long-term uh, confidence of the communities that will allow the country to stay stable uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, and after we've had that material made available or briefings to this committee, I'd be very interested in getting Mr. Lang and Dr. Knight's view um, in regards to how the Trump administration sizes up the continuing role for United States and our coalition partners uh, to a successful completion of Iraq. That would be, I think, helpful for us to have your expertise moving forward after we've been briefed on the, the Trump administration's strategy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and I appreciate your comments. I, I do think amongst the principals that are working through this, there's a strong acknowledgement of the State Department's role here, and I, I know that Secretary of State is very aware of that and has been far more involved in much of what's happening than I think has been reported. And I hope that what we'll do very soon is is have a full committee sit down with him. I just have to say I think uh, things from the standpoint of him strategically thinking about not only this issue but numbers of issues around the world are way further along than anybody might uh, might realize. So thank you both for uh, for being here today providing valuable insights. Uh, as, as the ranking member mentioned, I hope we have you back again. Uh, we'll try to make sure there's no security hitches the next time. And uh, with that, if you would, um, there'll be some additional questions. If We're going to accept questions to the close of business Thursday. To the extent you can have, answer those fairly quickly, we'd appreciate it. Thank you again for your testimony and for being here and service to our country. And with that, the committee's adjourned.